You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for choosing us. On the podcast today, I'm sharing my chat with electronic music producer Jacques Green. A lot of the inspiration for the music I write, and something that I miss right now, is when you're leaving parties, you'll have this like mishmash of music bouncing around your head, and you'll have like the whispers of like that one arpeggio and like that one break. It's really more this like half remembered um, impressionistic memory of like that breakdown or those chords and something like that. And that's often been a way that I've <laughs> taken inspiration to like write songs. 2021 marks 10 years since the release of this Canadian artist's breakthrough hit, Another Girl. Jacques Green has been a key member of the Lucky Me family. He's toured the world and has developed a breathtaking live show. Jacques Green recently took his first steps onto the blockchain, selling the rights to his new track Promise as an NFT, or non-fungible token, which in this context refers to a unique piece of digital art and could potentially signify a new platform and a new direction for the music industry. In this conversation, you'll hear more thoughts around NFTs. You'll also hear about his first job, packing records for Ninja Tune, and about finding purpose in the pandemic after hearing Actress's latest album. I hope that you have a wonderful listen to Jacques Green on RA's Exchange. Welcome to Jacques Green. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for um, speaking to us. So where are you today? What's happening in your part of the world? I am in Toronto, uh, just a few days past uh, the one year celebration of the celebration Mm. morning (laughs) of the last (laughs) flight I was (laughs) ever on. (laughs) Wow. Where was the last flight? Was that a part of tour? Yeah, yeah. I was touring my last album and um, uh, Jason Voltaire, Booty Spoon and I were on the American leg of like this live tour and we had just played in Colorado. It already kind of felt dicey. I think I was starting to ring alarm bells to manager and agent being like, I don't think we're going to be able to finish this tour. Like, you know, the NBA Mm -hmm. just shut down. (laughs) And, um, And then we had kind of like, I think the the following night's show in like New Orleans was canceled and my agent was like, all right, we'll reroute your flights directly to your next show in Chicago. And I was like, no, I'm pulling the plug (laughs) and kind of rebook flights back to Canada from Colorado for um, my, uh, for Jason and I. And um, that's it. Went home and, um, and the rest is history, obviously. Been home ever since. And how are things now? Um, it's uh, better now. I think uh, I think 2020 was very traumatic. I think for all of us. Um, I think I I I didn't particularly handle it well. <laughs> I, I think like I would speak to some artists for, who are or just even just kind of see it online of people. I finally finally off tour. I can make my magnum opus or be super productive. And I don't think. Uh, I don't think that's quite how it felt for me. I think I was more of a deer in the headlights and um, um, survived. Uh, my partner, uh, my girlfriend here is a nurse in both mm-hmm. ER and ICU. So the past 12 months for us have been very intense for very different reasons. And um, yeah, I think there was kind of like this very close to the kind of reality to it um, from like hearing her uh, professional encounters with it. And then my own, you know, like as kind of articles were coming out of like, it was very clear that there was like no shows for the rest of the year, possibly for the next four years, kind of all this stuff. It, it was like it's a heavy headspace to be in. But um, I think like I, I've tried to kind of stir myself into uh, improvising, getting used to new ways of of working, new ways of, frankly, of paying bills, and, and just kind of truly uh, finding comfort and a mm-hmm. center in in kind of 
the the small things that bring me joy, I guess. So I'm I'm better now. Have you picked up any new favorite hobbies? <laughs> um yeah, I, I did some uh, model kits over the winter. Um, you, you've got it behind me there. I had my little paint brushes oh, and like wow. the Tamiya brushes. That was like a, I think, too many hobbies throughout my entire life. Frankly, like since I was a kid, always revolve around screens. I'm like, I, I very much love teaching myself things, whether it's like dabbling in some like 3D render stuff, just to just to kind of figure out how it works, or like. Um, you know, and any kind of things like that. And then you, you kind of realize that you spend 14 hours a day in front of one screen or another. Um, and that was like a very nice way to just put on some records, <laughs> listen to podcasts and truly kind of like immerse myself in, in a little um, very detail oriented thing. Um, I always used to cook quite a lot. Um, it's like the one thing um, coming off tour that would kind of like center me and make me feel like I was home. And um, obviously that's been kicked into overdrive <laughs> this year. I think there's been kind of like waves of being completely over it. <laughs> um, but I, I tried to find kind of joy and, and pleasure in that for sure. Mm. Um, and have you had the headspace to like watch and listen to things? Is there anything that you've been particularly drawn to? Yeah, I think, um, in fact, absolutely. I think, I mean, the, the first thing you say when uh, that comes to mind when you said that was uh, like the Actress album was like a beacon for me. <laughs> Since it came out, I still listen to it all the time. It's like, um, I, in a weird way, I think the kind of precarious emotional state I've been in has like, in many ways, brought me back to um, my, my teenage self of being this very emotional <laughs> receptacle for culture <laughs> and kind of like really connecting with stuff. Uh, not, not that I was like jaded and kind of cold to it, um, before, but maybe with the extra headspace and the time alone and the time at home, like, and you know, with, with records, it's less of kind of like this frantic, like putting a record on while you're boarding a flight or whatever. Um, uh, Carmen and Desire really, really kind of hit for me. And, in kind of more ways than one, I think like when the single started coming out from it, I was so excited and, and so happy when I got to listen to it that I was like, right, like even concepts, greater concepts aside, like I'm, I'm getting like freedom and joy and enjoyment from, for like four minutes from listening to like this artist I like's new song. Maybe that's all I need to provide for people myself, and it kind of like it, it helped kind of like center. I think in a, in a larger question of like, do we need dance producers in a pandemic? <laughs> and kind of like having all these kind of nervous breakdowns about it, I was like, okay, like potentially I could like provide this for someone. That kind of like little moment, and so just on that level, like, thank you actress <laughs> and uh, obviously there's been like quite a lot of other music like um, I'm looking at the, the Zenker Brothers albums on the shelf there um, Ella Strauss the, the ambient artist has been like kind of playing a lot and since I was a kid like kind of throughout high school I think I defined a lot of my self and my world by watching quite a lot of movies and I, I find I, I've always found it to be a, a very nice way to experience other walks of life and other parts of the world and in ways that are kind of painful when the world is completely shut off to you and that, you know, I think a lot of my favorite movies seem to be kind of these slices of life in busy cityscapes, like kind of the Wong Kar Wire, Edward Yang stuff is, is all uh, canons that I've like revisited um, thoroughly um, uh, over the pandemic, but they, they make me maintain a sense of connection to like humanity i think in a way that has been very powerful and like frankly useful in um in this time mm. um well let's go back to just over a year ago dawn chorus came out and it came out a few months before yep. lockdown or whatever we call it um is this right that it was kind of made with the intention to be a soundtrack to like going home from the club sort of vibes yeah yeah um, well, let's talk about that first. Sure. Do you often have like intentions for your records? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, like a 
conceptual artist in the, the greater sense of uh, there, there's no like particular tech approach like a Holly Herndon and there's not like a, so much like a rock opera <laughs> feel with kind of like characters and narratives. But um, there's intent in that I think it's one of the reasons I've always been drawn to kind of dance music, like house and techno and stuff like that, is um, there, there's, there's a predetermined kind of context for it and a use, and I find that to be very helpful. I find, though I enjoy kind of music that's all across the spectrum, I think like myself when it comes down to it and I'm working on stuff, it's it feels easier to kind of quantify it like a, a stand-up comedian makes jokes that make people laugh. They can make you think, they can challenge your understandings of morals, but they really have to make you laugh. And like food can be interesting and deconstructed or simple and gratifying, but it has to satiate you. And, and I think like there's something, there's like kind of something concrete and intangible that I can kind of hold on to and wrap my head around. So whether it's about trying to make something that's very much quote unquote dance music, or at least in my mind, I can kind of picture when someone would listen to it. I find that helpful for me. Um, and so I, I tried to, it, it sort of was a reaction both to my age. <laughs> the record came out as I was turning 30. And I think in, in, in the world of music, that's like, you know, senior age <laughs> and, and kind of like, and, and I started kind of DJing around parties and clubs and throwing throwing parties in Montreal when I was 17. And so in, in my own personal kind of journey through this, I kind of feel like I'm, I was transitioning into like, not an elder statesman or whatever, but definitely out of my kind of like massively youthful era. Um, and so for me, it was a way of framing it also kind of for myself as one foot out the door. And not to say that my relationship with dance music is over or like that I'll never stay at a party all night again in my life. Frankly, after this year, I will make sure to do that <laughs> so much. <laughs> but but there was kind of like, I, that's just kind of where my head was at, I think. Like it, it was definitely not like, I, I don't feel like I'm at the, the pregame ready to go out with my friends stage of my life. I'm more the kind of like, okay, I've been at the party for a bit um, and like, okay, I'm getting tired. <laughs> and maybe I want some like alone time after this. And, and like, I think I, I wanted to kind of make some kind of dance music for people that could really exist almost predominantly outside of that. Like it's not, it's not a DJ record. It's not fully made to sit in a record box crate more so. And, um, headphones or around a house or something mm. but also that is such a special moment in the mm -hmm. whole process of the night out especially for me as usually designated driver just oh, right. like driving everyone back from the club and obviously I get to choose what we listen to because yeah. I'm the driver um but yeah in terms of absorbing music that really was one of the most special moments in the whole process of the night out so I love that you gave a little nod to that sort of precious time yeah and I think like almost uh and very directly it's like a lot of the inspiration for the music I write I was just talking about this with a friend the other day is like and something that I miss right now is um when you're when you're leaving parties even if you don't listen to music you'll have this like mishmash of music bouncing around your head and and especially with a good night of music out with like great DJing and like possibly varied music, you'll have like the whispers of like that one arpeggio and like that one break and kind of stuff. And like, you know, maybe you never even heard those songs before in your life. So there's, you can't just like throw on, oh yeah, like let me throw on that one like Moody Man cut the guy played. Like it's really more of this like half remembered um, impressionistic memory of like that breakdown or those chords and something like that. And that's often been a way that I've, <laughs> taken inspiration to like write songs is actually like uh like I, I had this song on on uh the fever focus double eps called perlant which is um sort of my like nod or play on like a 707 like drum track thing and it came from going to see theo parish in toronto and on the way home i turned to my girlfriend uh, we're like walking home from this like warehouse and i was like 
man, there was this one moment where he went into like a sequence of like drum track stuff and it just felt like it was like building this like buzzing euphoria in the room because he'd gone from like kind of these, you know, the more laid back uh, sound signature kind of thing to this like extremely like frantic jacking 707 and it like felt like the fever pitch would kind of never come and it, it like and I was like I need to like I need to harness that like make <laughs> and like it was like six in the morning and I was like kind of telling her this walking home and like and I kind of I think I wrote it down in my notes app and then like a few weeks later I tried to make a thing that it wasn't it wasn't particularly trying to like emulate any particular song he played more capture capture a feeling that I felt in that room at that moment, but also in the way that I kind of remembered it walking out of it. And I, I find that those kind of things of memory and um, specifically as it ties to kind of like DJing, because you're so often confront when other people are DJing, when you're confronted to stuff that you don't know or recognize, but that feels that you, that you connect to. I, that's like, there's nothing quite as good as like hearing a great song that you might never know the name to. And then you're like kind of humming it to yourself on the way home, hoping that you might recognize it. You'll maybe not. I mean, the, the, the extreme one is when you get the double pleasure of hearing it again some other time. You're like, it's that song again. And like, that's, that's really good stuff. But yeah, I think like the, the kind of coming home from the club kind of like approach to the album was like, to me, a way to inform the mixing of it. I wanted it to feel more internal and kind of headphone and kind of something that uh, you might want to have like this kind of cathartic moment leaving leaving a night and kind of either you want to prolong kind of that, that emotion, but also very directly this sense that like some of it was the, the stuff that bounces around your head, kind of like, um, yeah, the ghosts of the songs that were playing that night or something. Mm, I love that. So seeing as your listeners didn't really have, well, they had maybe a, a couple of chances to um, take it in at that point. I'm, I'm extremely grateful I got to play it out a, mm, a little bit, I, yeah. I have to say, because I, my, my, my heart really goes out to people, uh, colleagues and peers that haven't been able to play new work at all. So I, I gotta say, like, I'm extremely grateful and I'm like, I, I gotta, yeah, I got two months in, you know. Mm-hmm. And what about for listeners? Like, have you had any messages or heard any bits of feedback of people absorbing Dawn Chorus in like a different or surprising setting? Um, I mean, not so many surprising settings. I think a lot of people listening to it at home in lockdown. Um, but uh, that's like much in the same way of like listening to actress's record kind of gave me some gas in the tank of feeling like wow what we do matters and helps uh it's been it's like no joke as corny as it is like incredibly humbling and moving to have people like kind of reach out to you Uh, frankly at this point like if anyone is messaging you like a, even a screenshot of your song playing on Spotify like six months after a record's out, that's like a big deal. <laughs> so so uh, if there's ever kind of like uh, a more full-on kind of um, knowing, it, I've had a few messages uh, with people letting me know that I've, I've helped them through kind of like keeping the sense in the same way that like the, the whole record was meant as a kind of way to digest kind of post club kind of like memory of the club kind of feeling I think a lot of people have had that relationship with the record um and been like oh man this reminds me of like really kind of hearing music out loud and like really thank you and and I think that's that's it's crazy I think there there's different times getting messages from people that I just like fold into a ball I can't uh, it's it's a lot of pressure and it's like quite an honor to be able to (laughs) help people like that Mm -hmm, for sure um I noticed that you've been kind of writing and blogging doing your newsletter Mm -hmm. was that was that a lockdown thing or was that something that you were always interested in um it's something I've always been interested in I subscribe to a few newsletters that I find to be very interesting uh, Penny Fractions is one about <laughs> music industry stuff. Um, and But then facilitated or, or brought on by lockdown. I think um, like a desire to 
I wanted a way to connect with people that want to hear from me. So, you know, uh, only kind of subscriber base. You don't, you, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to engage, but, um, that doesn't, that didn't feel like I was trying to sell stuff so much. Um, I think, yeah, it, it's, I guess like Instagram and Twitter and so on allow you to just kind of post about your life and not feel like you're selling something, something, but it's also quite surface level. And so there, I think, I think it's just a craving to connect with people. Really? <laughs> I think in normal times when I'm kind of touring and I, I kind of like, um, I get to play music to strangers and maybe talk to a few afterwards. I get the sense that I'm kind of reaching out into the world and, um, uh, in a different way communicating, but, uh, I think definitely, definitely the lockdown made me want to kind of like, um, touch on some stuff. I'm struggling to write the new one this week, but, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not so good at it. I, I'll, I'll kind of quite procrastinate a lot, but once I get into it, I think the, the last one I wrote was probably about burial and Claire Denis. I, I'm like, I'm very much feeling like, uh, a fan for the last year in a way that is that feels really cool and so i i like to mostly write about things that are very exciting to me mm. yeah that definitely comes across in what i've read of your writing um well if you don't mind let's go back a bit um, yeah, sure. and hear, hear a bit about your journey so tell mm -hmm. me all about growing up in montreal about sure you know where did you go to consume music where did you buy music from when did you start working in music um so i was um i was just a young french quebecois um boy going about my life um i i was very like kind of music curious and listening to a lot of things but a little unfocused and um i, I went to kind of a shitty public school and <laughs> Our history teacher had a nervous breakdown halfway through the year um, and got replaced by this kind of this um, young guy straight out of university who took over for the rest of the year. And he um, he kind of like picked up that a friend of mine and I, uh, Sebastian, were, were quite like into music and, and really kind of like responding to quite a lot of stuff. And he um, <laughs> he pulled a. Uh, like the school of rock move, kind of like dropping a stack of CDs on us uh, on a Friday. Um, and it was kind of like all your, at the time, a lot of like kind of the, the down tempo and like luminary IDM stuff. So there was, it, it was like Autech or Tri Repetai, I think like the Bonobo album from the time, uh, like Boards of Canada and an Aphex record. And that, I guess like, that was quite, quite literally like kind of like a eureka and epiphany moment for me. I, I studied and played a lot of guitar before then. I was in like, like a, a couple bands and stuff like that. And all of a sudden it didn't make sense to me to want to play traditional instruments at all. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, so I, I must've been kind of like 14, 15 at this time. Uh, that summer got a job in a bakery so that I could buy like a busted MPC off of Craigslist um, and and really kind of started making like terrible uh, kind of, mostly kind of like sample based beats I guess like halfway between like a Boards of Canada Bonobo and like a almost Amantobin was another name that like would always come up so I was like buying like dollar records of like the taxi driver soundtrack and trying to sample like strings from that. Uh, <laughs> um, but, it, but very much like kind of outside of dance music, it was very much from like a downtempo IDM thing. And um, that history teacher actually the next year um, still had a radio show on CESM, which is uh, the Montreal university radio station on FM airways. And he lost his co-host and he actually asked my 15 year old self if I wanted to co-host it with him. And I was like, sure, why not? I don't do anything else on Friday nights. Was not very much invited to house parties or anything like that. So sure, I'll hang out with my teacher on Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I went over to his house a couple times to learn how to use CDJs and stuff. And then uh, just literally, yeah, started putting together um, some tracks to, to play on his show. So we we're playing like kind of Jay Dillon to Amon Tobin and then a little bit of like kind of the new like Diplo be more club kind of side of things <clears throat> and then through that um uh lewis Braden, tj love 
uh, had a monthly set pre pre-organized by my co-host Jean, um, and he'd come and play stuff. And turns out he was working at Ninja Tune. Ninja Tune had an office in Montreal at the time, um, and he asked if I wanted to intern there. I would help pack records, mail CDs to journalists, which is a very crazy timestamp. <laughs> and they'd pay me in like three records a week. I'd go for like kind of one kind of like slice of time and go handle some of that stuff. So literally go move like um, DJ Food and Amatobin CDs around like kind of the back of the office and then literally put um, like Mr. Scruff like promo CDs in like mail envelopes and send them out and then go to the warehouse and pick out three records and so um that was like kind of a massive turning point because also i started kind of like building a bit of a vinyl collection also talking to essentially kind of like mentors right like people in their like late 20s and stuff like that who were um all djs really and so this was like 2006 and they were already like they were always playing like the early like dubstep stuff happening in the UK, like uh, over the office. So like um, that was like kind of like, frankly, my, my first foray into being just completely obsessed with UK um, electronic music. And all of a sudden, like all that was playing around the office was the Planet Mew and Tempa and DMZ stuff. And um, that was like a, massive switch and we'd go to dna records this record shop inside a synth store uh, called moog and there still wasn't a section for it you'd have to find it in the drum and bass but like we'd go shop for dubstep records there and a tiny bit of techno and um it was like kind of like just thrown into the deep end of that stuff because i was like younger than anyone else kind of doing this stuff like my friend Seb and I still kind of like doing all this stuff together and but but kind of having these kind of like older people to kind of coach us and kind of you know Thursdays is when the new records come that's when you should go to the record stores kind of thing and kind of being kind of like taught this like the the, the old head <laughs> way um and so yeah I kind of just started spending every every Thursday in a record store kind of like listening to stuff uh befriending bitter <laughs> local DJs and um and started throwing parties um at that time I was still kind of like making only more of a hip-hop at this point kind of like influenced by kind of like a dubstep electronic music stuff um and we started throwing parties that were focused on kind of like live remixes of hip-hop <laughs> like kind of you know you early copies of Ableton Live and you've got like bootleg acapellas of rap music and then you're kind of like you brought like synths with you and, and you were running kind of VSTs and like putting it together. Um, from there, I found actually on MySpace Lunas because I was looking for um, producers from the Montreal area that we could book at our 100 person party and um, saw that he was in Montreal and then literally ran into him in the hallways of my school a, like a few days later. And I was like, hey, Lunas. And he was like, what? And I was like, I just saw your face on the internet the other day. You want to play a party next month? And he was like, sure. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he played, he, he came to the party. He crushed it um, using virtual DJ on his laptop. He had never been to a nightclub before. Um, and, uh, and uh, other kind of like mentors of mine, Megazoid, which was uh, 6'2", the underground rap producer and Haji Bakara from the indie rock band Wolf Parade were kind of like the main headliners of that event. And while they were playing, Lunas was just like, he shed a tear. He, he cried. It was, it was really beautiful. I think like as, as I've had kind of like series of eureka kind of breakthroughs and kind of like that sense of finding your people and finding your tribe and finding kind of your calling, it was, it was very cool to kind of see it happen in real time to him. And, and, I mean, I knew even from the first time I spoke to him that 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 kid was born for that. He comes from a background of like competing in breakdance competitions and like already had like really amazing, very like sample based hip hop stuff. And like it was just like the kid's a star. <laughs> um, and and from there, uh, our group, our band of uh, vagabonds grew to like 
Lunas was part of the crew. The Megazord guys were part of the crew. We moved to a bigger venue. Uh, we started booking uh, more often kind of like people that remain very good friends to this day, but kind of like uh, Machine Drum, No Such Thing, uh, Theophilus London, um, and so on. And then we, <clears throat> we were all the while, we were like friends with these this group of people in Glasgow uh, called Lucky Me and booked their first a show on their first ever North American run, uh, which was with um, Hudmo, Rusty, Mike Slot, and uh, Dom Sum. Um, and they stayed in the city for a few days, stayed in my friend Rob's uh, loft apartment, and we had already kind of been friends on MySpace, but that was like where the, the blood bond was made. And I think like that's kind of like, that's really the sort of Old Testament <laughs> Genesis story. From there after that, I kind of like, I, I really uh, started connecting with like kind of a new wave of dance music, again, happening in the UK, like the the early like Elvis 1990, uh, Martin uh, from 3024, like starting to do more kind of like 130 BPM stuff. I really got kind of switched on to that side of things and um, started throwing a party with another friend uh, so the three of us, me, Sebastian Still, and Brendan Duvall started throwing a party called Night Tracking in the old port of Montreal. And <clears throat> we booked, uh, you know, Floating Points, all this 1990, <laughs> Martin, Inflagranti, like a lot of the kind of like Italo disco uh, side of things that was happening at the time. And um, through that, I was playing a lot more dance music. I was starting to make a lot more of it at home. And... Um, and that's when I decided to start sending some of it around. Um, but I wanted honest opinion, and I wanted the Lucky Me guys to hear it on an honest ear. And so I, I worked in the St. Henry part of Montreal, and I walked past uh, Green Avenue and Saint-Jacques and <laughs> made a fake email address <laughs> as that name. And... Um, hit up some friends, um, Dom from Lucky Me included, being like, hey, this kid called Jacques has been sending me some music. Uh, I think it's kind of cool. What do you think? <laughs> and started sending it around that way. And um, Dom had a, like, hey, could you put me in touch with this guy? And um, I think immediately kind of broke the spell. I didn't want to kind of like drag him along too much. But <clears throat> that's really, that's it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I guess I haven't really look back since so that was I think that would have been 11 years ago 11 and a half years ago was like when that first stuff surfaced Two thousand twelve, you know, I was here in the UK blasting out another girl. Um, you know, the release date of that is March 29th, twenty eleven. Well, there we go. I'm, I'm having like a massive <laughs> midlife crisis, like nervous breakdown about the ten year anniversary of that. <laughs> but do you remember how you felt around that era when you know things were initially starting to pick up? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was. It was beautiful. I think the mix of um, it truly being born out of um, throwing this really fun party with friends where, uh, frankly, our, the club was packed every month when we did our, our thing. And it was really amazing to be able to provide that for the artists we brought. But also, like, it didn't even matter who we booked. We, I think we had, like, we kind of had the, the reputation built in and in the, in the place we were throwing the party at was, like, in a, in a sweet spot of, like, People were still excited about it. You know how shelf life of nightclubs can be um, dicey. Um, <clears throat> and so the, the entire environment and the feeling in the, the city as a whole was in a really healthy place. And I was making music that I was really kind of like picturing like, okay, it's going to be 234 in this one club. And like, I need something that goes to like this level. And, and so I'd like make stuff for myself and then I'd get to try them out in DJ sets. So there was this like very 
jubilant like eu euphoria permeating the entire time and then uh the first couple singles had done actually like quite well there was uh the look the first ep on on uh lucky me had come out like maybe late the year before and um at that point i still had a day job in montreal and i i'd used all my vacation time to uh to tour and um another girl was very clearly another type of deal than that first thing and um <clears throat> that's when it became kind of like a okay i guess um should i quit my job should i try to do this and um uh joe coghill who was kind of becoming my manager at the time just by virtue of like helping me out so much with getting some gigs out there he was related to the lucky me crew so it kind of like all felt like family he had gone like my music to Marion Hobbs on the first on the first run, which was also a massive deal to me. At the it, like, there are so many steps along the way that feel like kind of the biggest deal in your life. And I think like uh, growing up listening to the Breeze Block and Marion Hobbs, like hearing her play my music, like that was electric, insanely <laughs> incredible. And still, I I love that woman. She's really the best. Um, but anyways, he, he was like, kind of like, listen, man, I'm getting a lot of interest on this song. I, like, I think I, I, I really liked the track. I, I did think that it was my best thing at the time, but I, I don't, I wasn't really thinking in terms of, you know, Europe was still a little abstract to me. <laughs> like a lot of that kind of stuff was still very abstract. I was just like, oh man, this one crushed it when I played in the club last week. So like, feels good. But I, I didn't really think about it beyond that. But, uh, Joe was like, uh, no, man, like, I, this is pretty wild. And he, he's like, let me put together something. Cause I was like, I don't have any more vacation time. I can't go back to Europe. He's like, let me get back to you on that. And, um, he hit me back with, uh, with a run of offers over the course of two months, which was literally like the time we're in right now. So March and April, 2011 and something like 20 dates. And, you know, there's the possibility of playing like Bergheim and like, I think, you know, Trow is either on that run or the next one. There was a couple like luminary spots that I already heard of, and like, and the fees amounted to like you know uh, a way that I was like, okay, I I think like I could quit my job and like this makes it kind of worth it. If if there's never another show, I just get another job this summer or something, and um, <laughs> called my mom. I was like, uh, I think I'm, <laughs> I think I'm quitting my job to go on tour, and. Um, I think like as I, as I kind of like worked my way through it, it seemed like, you know, you can, you have to strike while the iron's hot. You can't, you can't just like try it again five years later, I think. I mean, or you could, but like there's something to be said for, with just like trying to make it happen when you can. Um, and I'm still here. Still, uh, <laughs> I outlasted the shows. In fact, <laughs> there, there's been kind of this like really strange uh, reckoning and kind of like um, thing about kind of like you know as I, as I'm really approaching this kind of milestone of this you know the the breakout single turning ten right as I'm uh, you know just twelve months out of the last time I ever played a show it's it's a strange it's a strange moment something something that should feel like uh, because on one level I'm like you know electronic music in particular seems like uh, there's quite a life expectancy and a shelf life and, and you really have to fight against it to kind of keep yourself in the mix. Uh, and I'm incredibly proud and, and grateful to, to still be able to say I pay my bills this way. But um, mm. it's also very strange to be like <laughs> not playing shows at all yeah. um, while, while it happens. It, 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 it's like almost like a, it's defeating kind of what I'm, but but I am still standing. I'm still here, and and more importantly, I think that like though that was the most direct and accessible and kind of like s successful song in that way, I don't think it's my best work. So that that also feels good. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say, how would you say that your approach to production has evolved? I think I still try to keep it somewhat simple. It, it's fun. I, I listened to that song for the first time in a while the other day as it was kind of dawning on me um, that the, the dates were all kind of lining up. And it's it's really got like five stems. <laughs> it's it's dead simple, which is probably part of its um, 
kind of success. I think there's something to be said for things that are direct and completely trim the fat. Um, over time, there's been moments where I've really layered things on and other times where I've tried to strip it back. Um, over, over time, over the last 10 years, I've, it's funny because it's been a source uh, from detractors uh, to say that it was that I haven't like kind of reinvented myself in a great way, but I've kind of done that on purpose. And frankly, now that I'm still here 10 years later, I feel like maybe I'm not so wrong, but there's, but um, I think in, in kind of musicians that I like and, and in, and in work outside of music, like it, it was kind of an example I used to bring up a lot a few years ago of like within the worlds of fashion, I think there's kind of two different uh, house codes. There's ones that kind of reinvent themselves all the time. And then if you like pick out a shirt from X season to the other, you're like, same person made this and other ones where you can kind of see a through line and sort of an evolution and this more iterative process. Um, and I'd rather be the Rick Owens than kind of the Mark Jacobs. Uh, and I think like there's, um, it, especially in electronic music where you're not really relying on like a certain guitar player or a certain vocalist or something, and you really have all the tools of the world at your disposal. Sure, you could make a new disco song and a jungle song the next month and have it under the same name. And of course you made both those songs and that's cool. And it's, it's great to be um, versatile. But there is value in walking down a certain point of view and a certain um, take on something. And I would l I would like to maintain that the work is iterative in that um, if you plucked a random song out of Don Chorus and you put it next to one of the songs off The Look or Another Girl, there's through line, there's point of view, there's intent, but there I don't I don't think they would sound like interchangeable as far as like when one could have come out and so uh yeah i've tried to kind of like sharpen my tool set get learn a little <laughs> as i move on because but i still think i'm very much like a bedroom producer in a way i think i've sometimes even shied away from learning too much <laughs> i think i i like to keep a little of the process like a bit of a black magic um I do have a better understanding now than i did uh about compressors but like <laughs> Modestly so. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, let's come up to sort of the present moment then. Uh, tell me about um, Promise. Let's talk sure. first about, you know, the sonics of the track. It's quite like airy and hope filled. Is that mm -hmm. is that the vibe that you were going for? Yeah. So I um, like I was saying earlier, last year was a bit a bit traumatic. I was um, blessed to have uh, a fair amount of people get in touch asking for remixes, which was perfect because it meant I could uh, pay rent. <laughs> but also it was uh, almost more importantly, um, a really kind of pleasant way to still work at my craft without kind of like sitting at a table uh, thinking like, well, what does Jacques Green have to say in a global pandemic? Because that really felt like a complete block and I, I, I didn't have anything to say. So to be able to kind of like work with other people's stems and kind of still um, have the joy of doing what I do for a living, but in that kind of more directional way, it was super helpful for me. And I think I actually like turned out some stuff that I was really happy with. As we got into the fall and last winter, I did try to kind of like kick myself in the ass and try to like make more music. And um, that took on many different forms. I think I tried to, I made some stuff that I tried to not overthink and it was almost more like useful. Um, I dove into like more collaborative work with a friend of mine, No Such Thing. We're, ho we're hoping we can kind of wrap something up sometime this year. And, um, but then I, I also like almost these kind of challenges to myself because I was kind of sensing like I was listening to, still am, listening to a lot of ambient music, a lot of kind of like texture focus. Not that I was making ambient stuff, but very, <laughs> very textured, very kind of heavy, very uh, expansive uh, music, which some of which is great and I hope I can release, but didn't really feel like uh, I was really locking in, going from kind of like loops to songs on those. And um, I tried to make, I tried to make stuff that was uh, more reactionary, in fact, like, okay, I'm locked in, the vibe is heavy, uh, winter is upon us in Canada, like, 
let's go let's make some escapism <laughs> and so and i made like kind of a whole batch of songs that felt yeah more airy more hopeful that's exactly right and that was like exactly the intent and uh i want to make stuff that makes me feel good while i'm working on it <laughs> and when i hit play on it there's this like there's this protective cloud that forms around me and that one felt um very much like that and and then um <laughs> And then the NFT space happened. <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's talk about this. <laughs> Let's so, go. <laughs> um, you sold the publishing rights for yes. the track on yeah. a cryptocurrency marketplace called Foundation. That's right. Um, in a sort of online auction thing for 13 ETH, which is around $22,000. Yeah. So how did you get the idea to... Um, do this and become one of the musicians that are sort of taking an interest in this new potential line of income? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a potential line of income. I, I'd, I'd like to see it as a more of a potential new medium, maybe. Um, I, I'd been following it for a few months. Um, and kind of I like and listening to uh, Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon's podcast um, was starting to get more familiar with um, you know the episode with the founders of Zora was very compelling. Uh, there was an episode with an old friend of mine, Jesse Walden, where he talked about the ownership economy on the internet and also media on the chain, which was like particularly interesting to me. Um, years ago, when he managed Dev Hines and Solange Knowles, he was working on this thing called Media Chain, where he wanted songs and images to exist on the blockchain as a way to, uh, you know, uh, acknowledge and pay rights holders uh, instantly. Uh, obviously, this would take a revamping of the entire way that rights are collected and paid out. But the concept was kind of interesting to me. Like if, uh, if a photograph is used in an Associated Press article, um, that photographer's minted photo is like logged as having been used in this thing. And if like, you know, CBS wants to reuse it in their article, like it's immediately kind of linked back to the original photo. That's kind of interesting. And um, as I was kind of seeing these uh, marketplaces happen, um, it felt like, you know, is there is there space for music here? So kind of like looking at it in that sense. And then um, Foundation reached out to me. Uh, they were talking about rolling out more music uh focused stuff over the next few months and um <clears throat> uh charles uh damga who i have known for a while was like uh w you keep coming up i keep thinking of you because there's always been a strong like visual aspect to, to what you do and obviously these marketplaces still have a very kind of like grid uh visual kind of like side to them so he thought i'd be adept at kind of like figuring something out for this and um this was only like a week and a half or maybe not even a week before the, the auction went up. And I kind of just um, threw it to my manager kind of being like, hey, like this kind of thing's come up. Like I kind of keep seeing it go around. Uh, my friend David Runnick just had this very like kind of successful sale of uh, this beautiful flower illustration. I'm pretty ambivalent about crypto in general. Uh, there's for every time that you kind of believe something about like some beautiful decentralization or co-op concept, there's like, the libertarian casino analogy seems to hold true for a lot of other things. And there's kind of like this very scammy vibe <laughs> around a lot of it. But I think like what it came down to for me was that um, now we're kind of like years down the, down the line. I think we can all agree that Daniel X will not change Spotify. And I just can't bear sitting around complaining about Spotify anymore. And so I'd rather think about what's next. I'd rather think about what are the other possibilities. And though I had my reservations with NFTs and crypto, and frankly still do, if not even more so than a month ago, um, it, I, I felt like I owed it to myself to engage with it with an open mind and in good faith and just see, all right, what's, what's the deal here? Um, and, as as we were kind of talking about it, the actual the, the the real idea for for the publishing rights 
really came from uh, kind of like internal conversations on our side and my manager like having this sort of not quite misunderstanding because I think he understood what was going on, but kind of like real question of like, but what are we selling? Like, it's not the master, it's not the publishing, it's a certificate of authenticity to the work. It's it's the baseball card, and I was like, yeah, exactly, that's what it is. <laughs> and um, and from that was like, well, what if it could be more? And like, kind of NFTs have existed outside of the art world for a while now. Like, they can be used as smart contracts. They can be used. Um, for uh as like tickets they, they 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 can represent other things and they can have other things built into them um i got out of uh lame long uh i would say predatory <laughs> publishing deal last year and so i've been self-published for a year which is great and also allowed me the the freedom to maybe try something out with this um so it, it kind of felt like an interesting time to call into question simultaneously is there a better way to manage publishing rights but also is there uh value to tying kind of real world stakes to this new abstract digital token thing and um and i had this kind of like song that didn't quite fit with uh more like kind of ep narratives i was building in my head so it was kind of like the standalone single in my mind kind of this whole time and because I was choosing to engage with this kind of platform and as an optimist and in good faith, it felt like kind of like right to kind of like tie it to a piece of work that also kind of had those properties. Um, and then I spent the weekend making that artwork, um, posted on a Sunday night. And by Monday night, I had high blood pressure and 11 Ethereum. <laughs> uh, um, and like, I think like there's a lot of caveats to this. Um, I don't think the young producers should put their publishing up to anonymous highest bidders on the internet. <laughs> Do you know I'm, anything about your your highest bidder, your winner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there there was um, like as as we're kind of like putting the thing together and like writing the contract that was uh, subsequently sent to the bidder, we tried to like game out like who who would bid on this? Who would mm. win? What do we think that would look like? Um, would it be just a mega fan that happens to have like a heavy crypto wallet? Would it be someone that's just like heavy in tech and crypto or a music industry that sees this as a bit of a proof of concept that sees like mm -hmm. the possibility and kind of like what this could represent? Mm -hmm. Or or could it be like a traditional publisher that happens to have a crypto wallet that wants to hold the songs publishing as a token? Like we kind of felt like it could maybe, it could really be any of those. and we got kind of most of them like when the auction hit 10 ethereum uh this guy tweeted like oh my god i opened for jacques green at social club in paris 10 years ago and here i am now bidding on his like first nft and so like oh my god there's like there's the mega fan um and then um it became a bit more of like a arms race for the last three ethereum between uh uh, someone that I later found out is working on a kind of like music NFT sort of platform. And then the actual winner of the auction, Trevor McFreedy's, um, is heavy in crypto, but also heavy in kind of like culture and stuff like that. He is heavily involved in um, the CGI influencer Lil Michaela. Yes, <laughs> so very much yeah. at the yeah at the intersection of art and technology. Okay. <laughs> um, so and like a week prior, he had commissioned... Uh, Casey Hill song on Zora so he's very much I guess at this um, and also I know happen to know for a fact he's like a big fan of mine um, and so I think for him it was like kind of a three-pronged thing of like oh my god Jacques Green he's he's cool I like his work also like I have a lot of Ethereum so all this is play money and the third one being like I see a future for music on the blockchain and for systems of patronage like let me let me back it up like kind of walk the walk on this one and so that's him jury's still out on if he decides to pitch the work to any music supervisor friends or whatever obviously the ball is in his court as far as mm -hmm. being the publisher of this work <laughs> but the contract did say that you can sort of have a bit of an input 
Yeah, so I, we, we drafted this kind of uh, legalese document that was uh, transferred. The reason why I used foundation is they allowed us like kind of a secret link to be sent to the winner. Okay. And so there was like the master of the song, the full high res of the video, and, um, and this PDF document that not only said that it's the imperative of the, um, the onus is on the owner of the token to register as a publisher. If you're not registered yet, that's on you. You got to figure mm-hmm. it out. <laughs> and once you're registered, it's up to you to get in touch with me. We'll register the song properly, but I have rights of approval on everything. Yeah, yeah. Like you can't, yeah, you, yeah, <laughs> can't can't be used for a political rally uh, tomorrow <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah. Well, it's super interesting, and um, yeah, you've now got some Ethereum. Are you going to hold on to that or cash it in? Uh, I've no, I, I'm just holding on to it for now. Um, it's definitely. I mean, after 12 months of not regularly working <laughs> it definitely was a nice uh, windfall um yeah I, I i i am now kind of like intrinsically aware of the heart attacks of the volatility of this stuff so i tried to not look at it as much as i can um it's i do think there are kind of like possible uh upsides to all this i mean first of all it's it's really beautiful seeing a lot of visual artists friends of mine who at times have like really struggled to make uh living off their personal work and have to subside only on client work be able to um take take the spotlight i think in a way that's really exciting i think if i were to kind of keep engaging with the world the parts of it that are exciting to me on a purely aesthetic and and work level would be to have collaborations with visual artists that I am friends with or that I admire that in the past with music industry budgets, I just (laughs) couldn't quite pay properly. And so like, let's, um, have you seen Jimmy Edgar's work on foundation? He's been, um, he's been doing some really beautiful bespoke, um, audio visual kind of like loop animation. He's a very talented, like CG modeler as well as musician. And like, I think those kind of things are really beautiful. I think I think this stuff is going to be at its best if people uh, approach it as like the possibilities of the medium as opposed to just, uh, you know, a, a place to dump your work that existed outside of it. So I, mm-hmm. I'd like to, if I keep kind of going for it, I think it'd be more kind of like custom things trying to make the most of, frankly, even like, what is possible within the actual like hash and what is possible within like kind of the token ERC 20 or whatever it is, uh, technology, obviously, uh, conversations about this would be incomplete without mentioning the environmental impact of it all. Uh, there's unfortunately, I think there's different ways to look at it. I like, I haven't been on a plane for 12 months. I used to fly more than the average person would in a lifetime over the course of like two months. And so mm-hmm. not that that gives me a pass, but it was like, I kind of weighed my, <laughs> my, my, my single sale so far against kind of like, um, my 2010 to 2019 carbon footprints. And I, I think I'm still, uh, doing much better than that. Um, I, I'd like to think that, they are actually working on it. I, I hear a lot of stuff about the proof of stake over proof of work. Jury's still out. I think, like I said before, the whole world of crypto have so much scammer energy that like, are they actually serious about it? I don't know. For me, it just means that it throttles how enthusiastic and how uh, active I can be in it in good faith. Um, right. Because, yeah, it's not great. Yeah, you're moving ahead with caution. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's about kind of treating things with respect, right? But I think, like, in the past, of, it's something we should do with everything. I think I, I, I'm frankly shocked at times with kind of, like, brands or even artists that will churn out new T-shirts all the time. And I think, like, there's crosshairs on this current thing right now, but, like, traditional art shows weren't really great for the environment either. Mm-hmm. And and basically all methods of income for touring musicians have been pretty bad as well. And so uh, <laughs> we're, it, it's in a tough spot. I, and yeah, but, but yeah, for sure. For me, it's like, I think there, there's, there's a few reason why I am not interested in kind of just treating it like an Instagram or, or something mm-hmm. like that. And, and yeah. 
being being mindful about it all, I guess. Mm -hmm. So as we look ahead to the future and start to feel perhaps a bit more optimistic about, you know, coming out of this just constant state of panic, um, (laughs) what do you reckon are the main lessons that you'll take forward with you from this past year? Like any changes to your lifestyle or your practice that you will continue to nurture? I mean, I definitely... um... To be honest, like I got to come clean. I, I've, I've had to adjust and come to appreciate um, much more simple things and, and more home cooked meals. And in a way that I makes me not only kind of appreciate uh, what I've had, but also kind of like feel the, the kind of the comforts and the luxuries that you experience when you're touring and, you know, the kind of the, the higher income, higher expense thing is fun, but not quite sustainable. And uh, I think I've come to a lifestyle that is far more sustainable and modest in, in a way that is very gratifying. And I think like, and the few, <laughs> the few kind of like luxuries <laughs> point in like kind of getting Bianco di Napoli tomatoes instead of regular canned tomatoes feels really good. <laughs> um, but I think that, like there, there's definitely like a, a massive appreciation for kind of like that going forward. I, I, the first time I get to sit in a restaurant with friends and, and have a conversation uh, is, is a day I very much look forward to. Not that I took any of that for granted. I think in a way it's not so much that I'm looking back and being like, my God, I took it all for granted. It's more like, my God, I, I really made the most of the opportunities I was given and feel extremely grateful for it and extremely humbled by the opportunity that um, my career and this life has like allowed me to have and like kind of maintain friendships around the world and stuff like that, people that I, I miss dearly so. And um, I guess has made me double down on a sense of, um, uh, of love and gratitude <laughs> and kind of like just kind of looking forward to... Uh, uh, to, to partake in all that, uh, some more. And I mean, definitely, definitely made me check a bit of my cynicism in regards to, I think, dance music, I think, which some of it was, I think possibly warranted. I think to a year and a half ago, we were parts of DJ culture. It, it felt a little stale, a little angry around the edges too. Like, you know, we, we bring up things of kind of techno Twitter and things like that. And not that we should like let go of that. There's a lot of, um, um, things being held to account that are super important and here's hoping that a year without shows once we go back in and you're making new lineups now there's like no excuse for not having racial and gender um, <laughs> parity across the board because like it's not like there's ongoing tours that you have to slot in <laughs> so like now that we have a fresh start let's make the most of it um, and actually kind of like get back in with the right foot um, but there was, I, I sensed a bit of like kind of angst and cynicism and kind of like stuckness uh, to a lot of it in the past that I'm hoping um, uh, a year plus without shows uh, brings people back to um, a true enjoyment of the reason why we're there. I think like it's made me definitely appreciate as much as I loved what I did and loved uh, club culture and all that, I underappreciated the power of having so many strangers from different walks of life in a room. Um, Mm. I I think there was no way to appreciate the level at which it was important um, without going through something like this. And so I'm, um, you know, I miss my friends, but I miss strangers even more. (laughs) (laughs) And how about um, plans or reveals for any new music? Um, So I've been chipping away at stuff. like I said before, no such thing. And I've been working on some music that we're pretty excited about. And like, you know, it's, that's been kind of a nice thing to bounce back and forth remotely. So hopefully have that done soon enough. Um, I, over the winter, kind of, as I sort of like kicked myself back into action, I, I really started kind of like getting a bunch of demos out. So hopefully, yeah, I'm kind of, I, I'm in the weeds of like kind of a, an EP right now that like, feels really good. I think there's different times where I'm like 80% done, 25% done. So it's it's <laughs> like one of those like the kind of rope-a-dopes, but that's um it's it's exciting to be back in that part of the process after um parts of last year where like 
creation felt impossible. The struggles of creation also feel fun and a cool challenge. And so chipping away at that um, and hopefully have that out, you know, later this year. Well, I'm glad to hear that the creativity is bubbling. Yeah, it feels good. Thanks ever so much for speaking to me today. It's been really fun and really interesting. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Jacques Green. We'll have a new episode for you next week. Until then, our full archive is available for you to take in. And if you find something you love, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts as it helps get our stories to more ears. 